Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. And then we continue on our journeys. Some seeking to balance their lives, others seeking to balance their checkbooks. Will some run willy-nilly onto the tarmac of tomorrow, hoping to launch and fly before the grand runway runs out? Dr. David Suzuki advocates for a natural order as his sacred breath derives from within the wonder. And so it has been, and so it will always be, as we continue with the man who speaks for many tongues. Listen. The things that we've been talking about right now are central to everything that you do and everything that you've done, and that is the fact that we must learn to integrate the fact that we are the air, we are the water, we are what we eat, we are uh, totally integrated and connected with the living systems. We need to integrate that concept much more deeply than it's it's uh, possible to no, based I, on I the agree modern with you era. Completely. And I think... You know, in all of the environmental battles that were that are going on and that I've been involved with for over 40 years, the terrible thing is that when you have a battle, you know, you're going to try to stop clear-cutting this forest or stop this dam or stop the pollution. There's always a winner and a loser. And I don't think when it comes to the environment, we can afford to keep having losers. We've got to come up with some kind of fundamental agreement about what we're all uh, uh, about so that there is no such thing as a left-wing or right-wing or Democrat or Republican. I want all of us to understand what the really deep under, underlying roots of our existence are. And I try to illustrate what I think the challenge is in the following ways. I was four years old when I realized that I could actually read. I was My dad was taking me on a streetcar in Vancouver to a movie, and I suddenly shook his uh, arm, I grabbed his... Uh, his uh, and said, Dad, Dad, I can read that sign. And what the sign said, this is in 1940, the sign said, do not spit. <laughs> in 1940, there were signs everywhere in Canada telling people not to spit. Now, cut ahead 65 years to the present. There are no signs anywhere in Canada saying do not spit. There are no spit police or fines for gobbing on, in public places. We don't teach our children in kindergarten now do not spit that's not acceptable and yet in our country today it's understood by everyone that spitting in public is not socially acceptable it's just a part of what our culture is but in terms of the environment we're back in 1940 we still have to put up signs saying do not litter do not do this here's an area you can fish but here you can't we have not got to where we understand what our society is about. So I believe that we all have to understand we are biological creatures. We need for our health and survival, we need clean air, clean water, clean soil that gives us our food, clean energy that comes from the sun, and other living creatures to, to cleanse the air, water, and soil. When everybody understands that, then it won't matter who we elect to office or who's in charge of companies. Everybody will say, hey, wait a minute, before we do that, we better check. What does that do to the air or the water or the soil? You know, you don't want to do anything to mess that up. 
Once we have that as our underlying deep-seated value, then we won't have to put up signs or tell people what to do because it, it will be automatic. And, you know, I'm, I'm always grateful that there are countries like Sweden. When, when the Swedish uh, politicians are, are deciding on some new policy, they always ask the question, what is this going to do for our kids? Like, what are the implications out there in the world? We don't do that in North America. Politicians are concerned about the next election. They don't ask, you know, that they're concerned about who's going to vote. They have to do something that will pay off to brag to the voters before the next election, look at what I've done. Well, guess what? Children don't vote. So children are not on the agenda in our political system. I mean, that's not because politicians are stupid or evil or bad. It's just that's what the political game is. When you're in politics, your concern is getting reelected, and the people that vote are the ones that are going to get you reelected. That's got to be your focus. So children don't enter the equation. Future generations, hell, they don't even exist. So why would they ever be on the agenda or on the plate of our politicians? So here you have a two-term uh, president, and do you think that he's worried about his uh, grandchildren or great-grandchildren? He doesn't even accept what the scientists have been telling him, that climate change is happening, and this is a greater threat than terrorism. And it's the greatest threat we face, other than all-out nuclear war. And your two-term president is denying that it's even real, let alone whether he should do anything. I think this is an absolutely terrifying situation. But that's because we're so short-sighted, and we listen to other lobby groups. I'm, I'm a political junkie, and uh, have been all, all of my life. But there's something that irritates me, and that is the power that we give to the politicians when the reality is the fact that the real power exists on the street and in the backyard. That's where the real, real, real power is. And we've, we've given it this phony sense of power, well, although they do have power. What it is in theory in right. a democracy, right. but when you have an election and 40% of the people vote, where the hell is the power there? And when, when that vote is so often determined by literally tens of millions of dollars in campaign financing which is a massive amount of money to pour into phony baloney attack ads and all kinds of other things. Is this what a democracy is all about? A democracy depends on a responsible uh, constituency where people are properly informed and take their, take their responsibility of voting very seriously. And I don't think we have that in North America, not when 40% or 50% of people are voting and when the bulk of what they're getting from uh, their candidates for office is all of this baloney uh, 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 ads, these expensive ads with 30-second sound bites. This isn't serious stuff anymore. It's, that, that's my point exactly, that it, it's just a facade. It's just a false sense of what really matters, in, and yet it does matter. Well, it does what matter, does matter but, now is yeah, money. Yes. And the people that pay the money to a politician who's running for office, when that politician gets elected, they have direct access to that political office. So if you put millions of dollars into a political candidate and he or she is elected, you know damn well when you pick up the phone and say, I want to see you, you're going to see him right away. And that's the problem we face today is the enormous amount, the cost of running for office, and most of that money now is coming from the corporate sector, and there's far too great power being exerted then by lobbyists representing the corporate sector. There should be campaign financing 
Uh, we have it in Canada. I'm glad to say that the last uh, Jean Chrétien, before he resigned, uh, brought into play limits on how much money can go into uh, any political candidate. I think it's a, a limit of $1,000 from corporations or private individuals. That goes a long way to about redressing the imbalance right now in the uh, corporate influence. See, this is where I think uh, your, your life story, which is told so well in David Suzuki, it's a rich story, and particularly uh, as it relates to your growing up and the pain that you suffered and the, the indignities and how that affected your, and now we're talking about real democracy, your commitment to coming to, to really serve indigenous peoples literally all around the world, where there is, again, in, in these little tiny isolated places in the Amazon, uh, for example, where you spent real time a very real on-the-ground democracy, and again, threatened in so many ways. But talk, I, I want to move back now into that sense of your commitment to this, to the cultural diversity, because you, you've really put your life literally well, on the line. But I feel I've been a student from, and learned so much from them. Hmm. And it really, you know, I, uh, for me, the opening of my eyes began in the late 1970s. Now, I'd been involved in the environmental movement ever since Rachel Carson published Silent Spring in 1962. And as an environmentalist, I always thought the problem was that human beings were taking too much stuff out of the environment and putting too much garbage and waste back into it. So the challenge was to regulate how much and what humans were allowed to remove from the earth and how much and what we were allowed to put back into it. And we needed laws and enforcement of those regulations. Well... <clears throat> By the early 1970s, I realized it won't work. It can't work that way because we don't know enough to regulate what we're doing. I mean, when DDT was found to kill insects, nobody had any idea that there was a phenomenon called biomagnification. You spray in very low concentrations out in the environment, and it gets uh, amplified or concentrated at each level of the food chain. So by the time you get to the fatty tissue of women, women's breasts, or the shell glands of birds, you've concentrated DDT hundreds of thousands of times. I mean, we didn't have any... We only discovered this phenomenon when eagles began to disappear and biologists tracked it down and discovered biomagnification. So how could we regulate DDT properly when we didn't even know about these things? CFC is the same thing. Nobody knew that it would, they would end up affecting the ozone layer. So for me, it was a crisis. We have an environmental crisis, but we don't know enough to be able to manage our way around it. And for me, the big shift then was in the late 70s when I did a film on a battle over logging in northern British Columbia, and a group of Haida people, these are natives, Native Americans, had been fighting the logging. Now, they had over 50% unemployment, and many of the loggers were Haida, and yet they were fighting against logging. And I said, this is really weird. Like, they need economic development. Why the hell would they be fighting uh, a, a system that was giving them money, giving them jobs and putting money into their communities? And I said to one of the leaders in the fight, Ahida, I said, why are you fighting the logging? What difference does it make whether those, those uh, forests disappear? And he said, yeah, if the trees disappear, we'll still be here. But he said, then we won't be Haida anymore. We'll just be like everybody else. And when he said it at the time, I didn't even know what the hell he was talking about until I got back to Vancouver and started thinking about it. 
And I realized, oh my God, these people don't see themselves as separate from the environment. The air, the water, the fish, the trees, all of that is what they feel make them Haida and different from everybody else. So I, that for me was a huge insight when I realized as environmentalists, we've framed the problem the wrong way. There is no environment out there and we are here. We are the environment. They speak of the earth as our mother and that's not metaphoric or poetic. They mean it literally because they say we are created out of the four sacred elements, earth, air, fire, and water. And as I began to look at this as a scientist, I realized, oh my God, they're absolutely right. I mean, if you think of air, you know, the moment every one of us was born, we take two to three liters of air deep into our lungs and we filter whatever is in it. From the moment of our birth, to the last gasp we take before we die, we breathe air 15 to 40 times a minute. And we don't even think about it. So think about that air. It goes into your lungs. Your lungs are filled with about 300 million alveoli. These are little capsules or cells that uh, cling to a, a straw or al, uh, alveoli, uh, alveolar collector, uh, sorry, bronchial, like straws, they're little, like little grapes clustered around the straw. And we have 300 million of these little clusters because we need all that surface area. If you flattened them out into two dimensions, they would cover a tennis court. That's how much surface you've got in these little uh, grape-like structures in our lungs. So each of these cells or, or capsules is lined with a three-layered membrane called a surfactant. Surfactant reduces surface tension, so when the air comes into the lungs, it sticks literally sticks to the surfactant, carbon dioxide rushes out, oxygen rushes in, and red blood cells with hemoglobin pick up that oxygen, and each beat of your heart delivers oxygen to every part of our bodies. So the point I'm making is you can't draw a line that says the air ends here and I begin there. There is no line. It's in us, it's stuck to us, and it's circulating through our bodies. And when you breathe out, you don't breathe all the air out. Some of it stays in your lungs. And the, lung, and the air that does come out spreads around and goes, for, goes from my nose up your nose eventually. We are air in the most profound way. When you look at it that way, then if I am air and you are air, and I jump in a car and drive five blocks instead of walking, that car is emitting all of its effluence into the air that is you and me. And it's pumped straight into our bodies. And if there are millions and millions of these cars and factories and all that pumping all of their effluence into the air, it's going straight into our bodies. Hmm, I wonder if that's got to do with the 15% of North American kids now developing asthma. Maybe it's got something to do with that. I wonder if our own children have become the canaries in the coal mine. This is the way of thinking that comes when you recognize the wisdom inherent in Aboriginal knowledge. That is, that we are created out of these important elements of earth, air, fire, and water. And whatever you do to those, you do directly to ourselves. It always makes me want to laugh and cry when I hear how we're treating our health problems as pouring more and more money into pharmaceutical industries. What's going on? We are the earth. We're created out of the earth. If we use the earth as a toxic garbage can... What the heck do we think is going to happen to us? Don't we think in the long run 
the health of human beings is a direct reflection of the health of Mother Earth. So clearly, if we're going to be healthy people, we've got to clean up the, the environment. We've got to clean up our mother. And that's what I've been learning from all of these communities all over the world. It's the same message over and over. Time runs out eventually, sooner for some than others. And it's what we do with the time we have left that will be the legends of those yet to come. We conclude with a passionate warning. When your voice of the earth returns, here on the Wild Side News. I'm getting a catcher's mint. I'm getting ice skates. I'm getting a jigsaw puzzle. I'm getting dying coral reefs. A blue bicycle. A walkie-talkie. I'm getting a severe drought. Cool block skateboard. I'm getting melted ice caps. A killer heat wave. A shrinking glacier. I'm getting a devastating flood. Adults are generous. We're even giving kids global warming. But it's not too late. We can still reduce greenhouse gas pollution. Go to fightglobalwarming.com. Brought to you by Environmental Defense, the Robertson Foundation, and the Ad Council.